Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We are by far the lowest cost source of electricity, by far. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I'm honored as always that you're joining me for another deep dive into the life and career decisions of an entrepreneur and in this case, a doctor. A very, very interesting individual in the world of solar energy. And I am super excited to bring this episode to your earbuds. And hey, a quick thank you to Miss Nicole Watson from Iconic Earth Foundation back in episode 277 for the intro to the old Dr. Phil Watts. Today's entrepreneur, Dr. Phil Watts, is an aeronautical engineer who among other things, has studied the wing kinematics and wing dynamics of flying bats and has even had some of his creations appear in movies. But today's story is not about Dr. Watts and his movie star past. Today is about a critical moment in 2002 when his daughter was born and the headlines in the newspaper rang alarm bells that will forever change the history for he and his family and how he shows up in the world. Well, if that has captivated your attention, you're going to want to stick around, keep those earbuds in because today's entrepreneurial journey goes deep with someone who has thought a lot about the application of local energy. And it's not residential solar Mr. Watts is developing. And well, if you're new here and these kinds of topics do interest you, after this episode, I hope that you'll go check out the other 300 plus episodes from thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and energy leaders in our archives at mysuncast.com or hey, right there in Spotify or iTunes or whatever podcast player you are enjoying. Speaking of enjoying, I have been enjoying your company all this week on our private Island, And for those of you who have been participating, you know what I'm talking about. I just want to say a really, really heartfelt, warm and special thank you to everyone who came along for the crazy journey with my friend PJ Wilson from Solar Energy and Storage Association of Puerto Rico and myself as we ventured into this unknown world of creating virtual worlds to host conversations about Puerto Rico and beyond. Suncast Puerto Rico was indeed a success with more than 200 people descending on our private island and two really packed days highlighted with conversations with the eponymous Jigger Shaw and even an appearance from a global head of business development from Tesla, Ms. Colby Hastings. Thank you, everyone who contributed, but more than anything, thank you to the companies who helped to make it possible. I just want to give them a shout out right here. Thanks to SunGrow and Sonova, our all-island and title sponsors. Thanks to Genlong Technologies, World Technology Supply, AP Systems, Alton Energy, Fortress Power, Clean Energy Nexus, Ace Clamp, and Enphase, all of whom not only showed up but supported as sponsors of Suncast Puerto Rico. I am so grateful, and I hope that you all are grateful because they help keep Suncast going. But maybe you're not here to hear about how wonderful Suncast Puerto Rico was. Maybe you're here to hear about Dr. Phil Watts. So without further ado, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as always, we are going to dive down into a discussion that is wide-ranging, but very much focuses on how the overarching development of solar is driving ever towards lowest cost of energy 
delivered. Today, we are hanging out with Dr. Phil Watts. Dr. Watts is a studied aeronautical engineer and has been uh, heralded for his pioneering in multiple areas of science and engineering, patents, and even movie appearances. Uh, Today, we're going to dig into how Dr. Watts has found himself in the renewable energy space. And uh, just want a hat tip to our friend Nicole Watson, uh, also a fellow SunGas guest, for bringing Dr. Watts to my attention. Dr. Watts, thanks for being on SunCast today. Absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you, Nico. I'd like to explore some of what uh, I just mentioned around the general nature of the scientific experimentation that you've engaged in over the last uh, couple of decades. Can you help me understand how in your world, Mother Nature, by way of bats and whales, has influenced the way that we can harness renewable energy and, and power our way forward? Imagine that you are living in the 1500s and somebody just sailed to Indonesia and found cinnamon in cloves and vanilla. <laughs> and your world just got blown wide open by the possibilities made available by Mother Nature. That's kind of how I view all of this sort of playing around and experimenting and all this other work I've done. By way of playing around, lots of us play around and a few of us get nominated uh, for a prestigious award like Inventor of the Year for a European Inventors Award. You've patented some technologies and started and sort of dabbled around in Mother Nature thinking about renewable energy. But was there some catalyst that turned you from research and academia towards full-blown renewables development and and that spawned the beginning of resource renewable energy, your company? Well, I had a lot of sort of fun and successes, as you kind of point out, looking and studying Mother Nature. And I thought that was really rewarding. I really found that the results, that they were amazing results that were unexpected that became available. So that was the surprising outcome. In the bat work, I never thought that it would be used in the movies. The set of coincidences that had the director, Peter Jackson, leaning on uh, aeronautical professor in New Zealand called Peter Jackson was just too coincidental. And then the ability to take comeback whale flippers and redesign sailboats and wind turbines was also a little bit unexpected. It kind of a little bit strange to imagine a humpback whale flipper spinning around on a wind turbine. And yet there it is, right? It's pretty cool. So help me draw the, the dotted line then from the exploration of how Mother Nature can inform the way that we can harvest her power to creating uh, your own development company. Was there a catalyst in there somewhere? Absolutely. When I was at Caltech, about every fourth presenter was talking about climate change. And uh, so we had quite a, over the course of four and a half years, quite an introduction to all the different things that are going on. And when my daughter was born, I just got really scared for her future because by the time she was born, the headlines in the newspapers were just basically broadcasting what for me were, were alarm bells and red flags. And I wanted to get into renewable energy and see if I could make a difference in the world. What year was that, roughly? 2012, is that when I'm... That was, no, that was 2002. I had several startups, and I learned a lot. It's one of those things where there's no better teacher than failure. And so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, I went through a bunch of... Uh, did the dog and pony show on Sand Hill Road, if people know what I'm oh, talking wow. about. You know, pitching mm. to VCs and whatnot. And uh, did a bunch of design work, did a bunch of company cash flow analyses and those kinds of things, trying to figure out how to get from here to there with a startup. And then I finally decided that I wanted to follow my heart and follow my own vision in 2012. And that's actually why I formed Resource Renewable Energy. Fantastic. So over the last eight years, what would you say is one of the key lessons that uh, has now become a driving force with regards to resource renewable energy? That's a great question, Nico. I've, I've continued to follow my heart, first of all. And I've had it grow through building community, through friendships, through uh, finding the best possible people. It's been very organic. I've just uh, really tried to be a a raft on the river and go with the flow. So in the evolution of your business, what have you discovered about renewable energy that is driving your business model today? I had a very strong focus on the financials. I wanted to put together business models that made financial sense. I wanted to put together development models that were sustainable. 
uh, I wanted to make sure that we were always meeting the customer's expectations on the pricing front and being able to take those project financiers and have them be fundable. That's been my main focus as sort of as a company. Okay. So what's the key takeaway then in the study so far of the financial model and structure of the industry? You know, it's interesting. It's solar's won the cost competition. And I think that's not exactly news. It's I think it's the implications of that in terms of what what type of new markets become available and what type of opportunities have shown up and you know and what now where does solar go now i think that's that's the interesting question yeah where indeed right now the current model prevailing is by and large the energy that is generated is generated as far as the overall energy infrastructure is concerned out in a solar farm in the inland empire or in the middle of nevada or indeed in the middle of oklahoma how do you see that changing? If one has a sort of a broader perspective, because I originally came into this industry from the wind area. And in wind, it was all about making the wind turbines bigger and bigger and bigger. And there were economies of scale for doing that, of course, but there are also consequences for doing that, which is you can only do big projects. You can only do projects with 50 or 100 wind turbines. You can only do projects that have an army of lawyers and Wall Street financing and so on and so forth. And so that bigger and bigger has ended up painting the wind projects into a bit of a corner, if you will, or into a certain cookie cutter. And I see something similar happening with solar in that it's, you know, utility scale projects and it's bigger and bigger and it's economies of scale and it's low, low, you know, land lease costs and low construction costs and ground mounted and sort of aspects like that. And I think, though, in terms of the work that I've done and the, the opportunities that I've noticed, that maybe the solar industry is also painting itself into a bit of a corner. In what ways? Well, the price keeps coming down. And what happens when the solar price keeps coming down is that the cost of energy delivered, by which I mean the, the losses uh, of which there are many, there are transmission losses, but there are other technical and non-technical losses. There are other risk and financial costs as well. There are you know, small wheeling charges, but sometimes big curtailment costs and or spot market costs and other things like that. And so when you start looking at the total cost of energy delivered, as the solar price goes down, the other costs start getting bigger and bigger. And they start- As a component. Yeah, as a component of the total cost. So that starts skewing the marketplace. And so I think if you want to understand where solar is going to be going, I, I realize this might be a little bit forward thinking, but if you want to sort of understand where solar is going and what the consequences are, then you have to start looking at the total cost of energy delivered. And, you know, there's some- Interesting examples I can share if, you're, if you want to go there. Yeah, I would. I mean, and it sounds like what you're predicting or projecting is that the economies of scale are beginning to fade for these large scale projects explicitly because of the inherent losses related to some of the things you just mentioned, curtailment and, uh, and others. Yeah, and the cost of the transmission system and other and other aspects like that. Yeah. So I can give you some examples. So in California, for example, the state has a high overall transmission losses. And part of the reason is that the, the transmission system is pretty highly impacted. Uh, it's a, also a high heat, high temperature area. There's a lot of urbanization. There's a number of nodes that, that the power might need to go through. And when you put all of those factors together, you end up getting a significant amount of losses. So the average for the country is three and a half cents per kilowatt hour added to the generation cost. In California, it's probably closer to four and a half. But you also have curtailment risk, which is a relatively new component, or it's gotten more significant in the last few years. Think forest fires, uh, brownouts, other things like that, population growth, different areas which maybe aren't able to deliver all of the power at 5 p.m. when people get home and turn their air conditioners on in summer. And so, and so you're starting to look at, you know, a generation costs out in the desert of two and a half cents or, you know, ballpark, uh, but you're looking at cost, total cost of energy delivered of closer to eight cents. And there's a huge gap between those two. And that gap is not always sort of recognized. And what it does is it actually makes it favorable to, to generate the electricity closer to the end user. 
And that actually, at this point, the prices have dropped. So in California, I would say that the total cost of energy delivered, there's a 2x factor on top of the generation costs. But even in the Midwest, where cost of electricity is a lot cheaper and the transmission system is less impacted, uh, it's still a 1x cost on top of the generation cost. And then if you go into other places, just to sort of think globally and go elsewhere around the world, and you go, let's say, to Kenya and Africa, um, you could easily have a 4x factor where the cost of diesel power or kerosene lighting or other things could be quite a bit more expensive than local solar generation. And so you start to see the, the sort of the main thrust of where solar is going financially is local generation is much more favorable from a cost perspective. But there are, there are problems with that, though, that come with that. Yeah, well, before we get into the problems, I'd love to hear if we are, in fact, moving to a more localized generation model. What are the implicit advantages and why are we missing out on those advantages today? Well, when I sort of look at these projects, price these projects out, talk to customers, uh, you know, I have fellow developer friends. We talk to EPC and so on. And there's just a conversation around not going there for a number of different reasons, regulatory reasons, um, regulatory risk, a lack of experience. So these are the challenges, right? Yeah, these are, I mean, I'm just sort of things that you encounter along the way, reasons why people don't necessarily want to step into these projects. They're not, it's not familiar territory, I think is the sort of the quick answer. I want to spend some time on the challenges. I want to first, though, explore if there are other implicit advantages to moving away from? Absolutely. I think uh, what happens is uh, you bring the power and the investment and the money into the community proper. And so the solar power is no longer just an asset or a commodity that people are buying, but you've just brought the investment into the community and the multiples of that money flowing through the businesses and through the people, and you, you keep that money in the community proper. So it's actually a form of economic development in addition to a form of electrical power. And another interesting aspect, um, which some might argue is still a component very strongly in residential solar, which implicitly is a local generation model, uh, is that the money invested in utility scale projects out in Moapa gets sucked out of those projects right into the pockets of Wall Street, essentially. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And so when you do local projects, you're basically, you know, you have a local developer, you have a local EPC, you have a local people managing it and, and carrying out the O&M and all these different factors that you talk about on this podcast. Well, those dollars are going to circulate two, three, four times within that community. But as you suggested, with great power comes great responsibility and often great resistance. So uh, the off-size coin, there are quite a number of challenges, staggering challenges, infrastructurally speaking. And uh, how do we overcome those? Well, let's start with identifying what are those uh, challenges that stand in the way of us moving towards more local, as you call it, instead of distributed generation, uh, regional generation philosophy. Well, I think the, the good news, if I can just sort of add just a little bit of good news before we hit the challenges, is that uh, the, the technologies and the software and the hardware that's needed to make sort of local generation more common and, and more widely used uh, is off the shelf. So that stuff exists right now. Um, and so I don't think there's anything too sort of mind blowing in terms of the inverters and the voltage bars and the, you know, and the batteries and the storage and all that kind of stuff. These are things that, you know, you talk about on this podcast quite regularly. And so um, something that is familiar to your listeners, the challenges I think are more to do with having the local people buy in. That's, I think, the biggest challenge. And there's a number of different ways that that happens. You have to get the landowners to buy in. You have to get the off-taker to buy in, which in California would be the CCA. In the Midwest, it would be a factory. And in, in Kenya, it would be a village. Um, and in all of these cases, the off-taker might not be familiar with this model. Um, and in fact, I can give you a wonderful example if, you're, if, you're, if you want a really down-to-earth example of, of where things can just go wrong. Just the traditional RFP process in California for California CCAs, it is geared basically towards yet another project out in the desert, is geared towards yet another project developed by 8-Minute. I love what they do. They make a big difference in the world. 
But the difference when you're doing local projects is you probably want to do an RFP for the engineering procurement and construction rather than an RFP for projects in general. You just want to shift the focus slightly. And that little shift makes all the difference in terms of the types of projects you can do, the type of planning that you can achieve, the types of cost savings that you can achieve, the kinds of discounts and rebates that you can get, and so on and so forth. So this whole world opens up with just a slight shift in terms of what are you going to put out the RFP for? Are you going to put it out for the project or are you going to put it out for the EPC? Okay. Does that imply that the CCA itself needs some, some sort of internal resource or even an external resource that is going to do the lifting to, to ex- explain what the CCA's local generation needs or model looks like before they can put that project out? I mean, that's the heavy lifting that big companies do. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And I think if you if you want to get nuts and bolts about it, you need new policies, you need uh, slightly shifted legal agreements, you need to have some sort of regulatory cooperation or environment that welcomes this, and you need to have landowners who understand and welcome a nice uh, sort of leasing program for the putting the solar facility on their on their site, and so from my perspective, none of those things are on their own a heavy lift. But when you kind of put them all together in terms of are we set up to do this, the answer is definitively no. And do we need to innovate across a number of different areas to make it work? Yes, and those are turn out to be some substantial challenges when you put it all together. Yeah. Okay. So let's unpack each one of those a little bit one by one. And I think I've captured here with the challenges, we've got regulatory, we've got agreements, we've got landowner issues, we've got policy issues. So let's start with regulatory. How could regulatory challenges be mitigated? Well, anytime you talk about doing uh, something that is ahead of the meter, meaning we're supplying the distribution grid and it's not behind the meter, you have to wonder if Public Utility Commission will even allow that to begin with. Um, And then you have a whole bunch of different factors that come in. So, for example, when we do that, we have to pay the full transmission and distribution charges. So we get a a penalty. uh, in In essence, we have to pay for the transmission system, even though we're not using the transmission system. So the systems aren't set up to have ahead of the meter projects putting power out into the distribution grid. So what makes these projects different is that we're, we're producing power ahead of the meter, in front of the meter. We're putting the electrons on the distribution grid. And so we're bypassing the transmission system, and yet we still have to pay for it. And so, for example, uh, so first of all, we need the Public Utility Commission to allow us to do that in the first place. We need CalISO to be okay with us doing that because it's outside of the normal regulatory environment as of right now. And if I take San Diego County and the territory of uh, SDG&E, for example, the transmission charges are 12 cents a kilowatt hour. Distribution is 4 cents a kilowatt hour. And so we have to pay a, a 12 cent per kilowatt hour transmission charge, even though we're not putting the electrons on the transmission system. And there's also an extra in SDG&E territory, an extra four cent per kilowatt hour, roughly. It changes every year slightly, called PCIA. It's a power charge indifference adjustment. I don't know how they came up with that acronym, but it's an extra four cents a kilowatt hour that that we have to pay for to SDG&E for some of their past uh, renewable energy investments and some of the costs that they've incurred in the past. And so we are essentially paying a 16 cent per kilowatt hour penalty for producing local distributed energy and putting it on the distribution system. That's insane. 16 cents a kilowatt hour. That's that's unbelievable. And it's also not something that most would, A, believe is fair, and B, expect is, in, is bundled in. I'm going to let you say that, Nico, because I try to work in this environment and uh, <laughs> I want to have sort of a more politically neutral position. But um, but it does, it skews the marketplace because with that, without those charges, we are by far the lowest cost source of electricity. By far. Is it fair to say then that these extra 16 cents a kilowatt hour is the utility, in this case, a regulated utilities, effort to recover losses due to their antiquated infrastructure? There have been plenty of people who have used words and ideas like that to describe <laughs> it, if I can be diplomatic about I, it. I, I love your diplomacy, and I am nonetheless not uh, required to be so diplomatic. It sounds to me like a, a grab, a reach around from the utility to uh, absolve some of their sort of, uh, uh, I'll call it legacy issues with uh, our very modern infrastructure. 
But I have a slightly different perspective on this, if I can just offer a different perspective here, yeah, sure. which is if I was a utility and somebody said, we're going to allow cities to form CCAs, I would just sit back and fold my arms and go, wow, are they really going to try and enter this crazy, wacky, complicated business? Yeah. Like, good luck to them figuring this stuff out, you know? And so... I view my job and I view the job of, of resource renewable energy is to figure that out. It is to say to CCAs or Midwest uh, factories or villages in Kenya, look, we have a solution and it's perfectly viable. And it's, and it's much lower cost than whatever you're doing right now. All we have to do is sit down and figure out how to actually implement it together. But isn't there also a very real uh, issue with the real-time delivery of this energy that we have to deal with? I mean, you've said in a previous call that the grid can only, in fact, take about 12 megawatts or so at a time. So how do we manage this sort of black hole around managing the distribution grids if we're trying to do all this local power generation? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it's uh, you add it all up, I think is the answer. You, you want to add up the private rooftop. You want to put batteries in people's garages, but you also want to do commercial rooftop and put batteries down behind the parking lot or something. But the type of projects that I'm talking about are, they are um, the sort of regional projects and they do the heavy lift. And if you, if you can do enough regional projects in an area, you can supply a substantial amount of the generation, a substantial amount of the storage, a substantial amount of the resource adequacy. And so, and, and you can do it with incredibly low cost electricity and discounts all at the same time. I've been wondering what's your least favorite solar asset management activity. You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Hey there, commercial solar warriors. If you listen to this show, then by now you're very familiar that Extensible Energy's DemandX load flexibility software helps close more deals and faster by shifting to lower time of use rates and saving your customers 30% annual demand charges, all at a tenth of the cost of battery-based solutions. But did you know that Extensible also has a new solar partner loyalty incentive program that rewards your sales team with a generous sales bonus? Well, for now, until the end of the year, when you complete just three successful DemandX installs, your sales team member will get a $2,500 check or vacation voucher for when we all do get to travel again. This program also applies to your past customers who already have solar and could benefit from DemandX extra savings. Just contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast to become a DemandX reseller and get all the program details and benefits for yourself. Again, that's extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Have you been searching for that perfect rule that gets you into clean energy or maybe transitions your career to the next level? Might I invite you to check out LightSource BP? That's right, the global company focused on solar energy and low carbon economies backed by one of the largest energy companies in the world. From strategy around the world to action locally, you can be inspired and be the change by joining LightSource BP. By choosing a career at LightSource BP, you will join a team that truly cares about creating a more sustainable future for our world through safe and meaningful low carbon energy projects. Learn more and find out what career awaits you at lightsourcebp.com forward slash careers. We just had an episode not long ago with, with uh, a friend of mine, Will, over at Strata, talking about resource adequacy and how uh, essentially the CCAs are having their uh, hands tied and uh, the, the local regulated utilities are being given the resource adequacy sort of keys to the vehicle right now. So how to how do we handle these policy and regulatory issues around infrastructurally important questions like resource adequacy with this regional model? 
Well, I think there's there's two answers to that, which is that if the regulatory environment doesn't does not allow these types of uh, energy sources and generation and storage ahead of the meter, you you simply go hard and heavy behind the meter. That kind of goes without saying the price point and the arbitrage opportunities are such that that makes good sense. And then if you are allowed to do that type of work ahead of the meter, it's it's just a siting issue. I think it's finding landowners who are willing to make their land available, who understand the economic opportunity. Uh, we pay a lot more per acre, uh, you know, in a city environment than, than you do out in the desert. I mean, it's a substantially higher cost. And so it contributes to the cost of energy, but it's substantially less than the total cost of energy delivered, the losses and all that other stuff that gets piled on to the uh, utility scale projects out in the desert. And so it's a winning it's a winning financial opportunity. If we assume that the overall, I think you said it was about 12 cents uh, per kilowatt hour additional stack for transmission distribution, how much is the local land piece of the equation in terms of, the, uh, of an extra cost? Like how much of that 12 cents does it pull out? Does it absorb, suck up? I would say ballpark half of it. Wow. <laughs> That's huge. I would say the land leases in, in a city environment are easily an order of magnitude higher than per acre than what you would get out in the desert. But the financials still pencil out in the end. And so I think uh, it, it, it makes the uh, opportunity interesting. I, I think the driver is really... If you get local buy-in, if there's local interest, political buy-in, community buy-in, if you can have enough people who want to have it there, then the economic development aspects kick in. And it just really makes, not only is it the lowest cost of electricity or source of electricity, but it's also the, the single best local investment opportunity as well. And you're just hitting both of those at the same time. It's just a huge win-win. Yeah. So we often think of landowners as farmers or commercial real estate in whatever jurisdiction. But in fact, in the regional generation game, landowners are different. E.g., instead of a farmer, we're talking about one of the local municipalities. Tell me about how the landowner game is changing uh, as we move closer to the to the community. Well, there's two things. I mean, one is they're always thinking about, you know, developing houses or commercial opportunities. And so we're that's really what sets the price for the land. That's really what the competition is all about. So that's why it costs more for for these types of projects. But also the agreements have to be modified because you're storing a lot more of electricity, you're playing more of an arbitrage game if you know if the sun hasn't filled the batteries up on a given day you're going to fill them up overnight and so you have electrons going both ways in and out of the in and out of the facility and so the the legal agreement with the landowner has to be substantially more sophisticated and allow for a lot more equipment a lot more control of the equipment a lot more um, flows back and forth it's not just uh, we're going to set something up and push some electrons out onto that substation a half mile down the road yeah and and if we go back to a previous piece of this conversation you suggested that these munis should actually be developing these deals themselves instead of outsourcing the entire deal development to a large company uh, that would bid into a plain vanilla RFP package. That's right. Uh, That would be a, it's a minor policy shift. It's actually an interesting conversation. They hire consultants to issue RFPs for projects. And I think the policy shift is they should hire developers to issue RFPs for EPC, for the engineering, (laughs) procurement and construction. Because, and there's, there's two really interesting advantages when you do that. The first is so not, big, not much of a big shift, you know, in terms of you're going to hire somebody and they're going to go out and they're going to make energy projects happen. The two differences are uh, that the developers don't need to get paid a penny. We, we get paid for delivering the product as opposed to an energy consultant who gets paid for putting out a sort of a general project RFP. And so we don't actually burn any cash. We don't, we don't want any upfront money for what we do. And so we're, we're a really good investment and we're, you know, a sophisticated group and specifically at resource renewable energy. We have a, a degree of technical sophistication in terms of putting these projects together. That's that we feel is quite competitive. And then what we 
go and are doing is putting the EPC out to bid so that we can lower the overall project cost because that's where the financial hit occurs. That's where you want to save the money. Everything else is basically measured off of the EPC cost. The development takeout fee is, is a percentage of the EPC cost. The financing costs are a percentage of the EPC cost. And so it's really just, you just want to see if you can get some competition, some bidding and, and lower the cost for putting the project in the ground. Yeah. So in traditional form, I mean, what we talked about was broadly sort of backing up just a second for listeners so they don't get lost here. We have regulatory issues, landowner issues, policy issues, and agreement issues. We've touched on regulatory and landowner. We're on a bit of the policy, which mixes with landowner because policy is implicitly tied with who is developing the project, um, which is in this case, the landowner, the CCA, uh, the municipalities involved there in the, in the hierarchy, uh, which <laughs> itself comes back to a broader challenge of the local power structures and who manages that flow of value. But back to the CCA itself issuing an RFP on behalf of this regional power structure, they pull these same agreements off the shelf. They go back to the same consultants as usual. The consultants often are far less qualified than dedicated companies who have uh, expertise in how to develop these resources, put these proposals together. Your suggestion is that instead, local entities should partner with developers to develop the RFPs the developers don't need to make a penny off of it. They then turn around and compete in the process for, for building the project once it's issued? Yeah, developers just do what developers do, which is we reduce risk and we lower cost. And we charge a fee for that, but we reduce risk, we lower cost. And, you know, everything that you mentioned earlier, the challenges like dealing with the landowner, putting the right types of agreements in place, navigating policies and regulatory environments, that's what we do. That's what we do for a living. And we're that strange breed of creatures that enjoys navigating those complicated, I call it seven-dimensional chess. And I love it. You know, I just, I love the sort of the sophistication. I love putting the pieces together. I love figuring it all out. The technical side, the pricing, the policies, the agreements, the landowners, all of that. It occurs to me, and I've seen this before, right? I've, I've seen Chevron do this a ton in the, ma- in the mush space, right? So this model exists. Have you seen it successfully implemented at the uh, at the regional or sort of utility level thus far? It has been, but it's been called experimental, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a wow. conversation that oh well, you need a you need a California Energy Commission grant in order to make this work. And again, I don't know why. I mean, the cost yeah. is so much lower than the uh, than the electricity from the desert that mm-hmm. I'm just left scratching my head about these. Mm-hmm. It's 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 inertia, is what it is, Nico. It's yeah. just inertia. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny, right? I mean, the reason that we use PPAs in our industry is because people like Jigger Shaw saw it happen, saw it working in wind and other areas. Uh, the reason that we use, I think, their master limited partnerships. Uh, probably butcher that because I'm not a, a, a lawyer or financier uh, implicitly, but they came from how REITs and oil industry investments are structured. So it seems to me like within our own industry, when we've been using these structures uh, in even municipal projects, uh, which in some, in many ways, like working with a school or, or a hospital, it is a municipal project. It's often in different hands. One of the things that I recall back in the day when I was competing against Chevron, who had in many cases written the RFP for the school that they turned around and, and then competed to win, was that there were just a plethora of different types of agreements and nobody really knew what agreement to standardize around. Is that still a problem as we look at sort of this regional generation model? I think the agreements are more or less similar to what's out there, if I can. So I, I yeah. would say to you that what is what is transcendent and what is busting out is the number of projects that are available, and the not so much these these other challenges that we've been talking about, but actually the the challenge of just getting these projects into the pipeline. Like just Hmm. getting through those early phases of talking to not one or two clients, but 20 clients and, and really just busting this model wide open. And there, there are so many conversations, uh, I think maybe residual conversations, leftover conversations that just don't 
sort of uh, just are not transcendent, are not sort of realizing that solar cost is so low, is, is so cheap, it's so, we are in such a phase of rapid change, there are so many great projects and opportunities out there that we're ready to bust out now, and that um, what's missing is the capital actually to bust out as fast as possible. Um, it's not that these projects can or can't be done. It's 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 that there's 40 of them waiting to be done, and there's just not enough early development capital to reach out to all those clients. So specifically early development funding, um, which is in many cases why the large companies like uh, you know, even NextEra uh, or, or 8-Minute thrive and succeed. They've got very low cost of capital. They can step in after early stage has been uh, sort of uh, barriers have been busted and they can take the projects through the finish line. But who funds that at-risk capital where the risk is high, but obviously the reward is high as well? I think the thing that isn't talked about often enough is that the big players like NextEra have figured out that if you do one project and you want to set it up so that you make enough money coming back that you can go off and do one and a half or two or three more projects. You want to set it up so that every project you do is funding even more projects. And, and that is the trick, I think. And it's, it's in some sense a, a, a little secret of the industry that the bigger players use to get ahead and to keep their market advantage. And I think as a, a developer in this space, the thing to do is to set up exactly that type of system where you have a type of early development hedge fund that is basically paying it forward in multiples so that you can accelerate the early development work and fill the pipeline faster and really achieve this transcendent busting out that is just waiting to happen. I mean, we are literally busting at the seams in the, in the solar industry and it's just bursting with opportunity. And, you know, this is pretty much the only thing that's slowing it down. Assuming we begin to get traction on that, I think a lot of folks are trying to work on that problem, this early development hedge fund model. You and I talked at one time about this being akin to kind of the quick and loans of the mortgage industry. How do you keep everyone from chasing the same projects? There has to be somebody whose responsibility is to is to get the pipeline started. And so the, the example in the mortgage industry, the mortgage industry is a very finely tuned, very efficient use of capital, the way it flows from one player to the next. And so if you look at Quicken Loans, their job is really to sign up the customer and then pass the mortgage, bundle up the mortgages and pass them on to the next player down the system. And so they're not hanging on to the mortgage. They're, they're selling that mortgage and getting their money back and turning around and putting it into the next mortgage. So it's called a revolver. And it's the whole name of the financial game is to see how quickly you can turn that money, how quickly you can sell the project from one hand to the next hand down the system and then plow that money back into the next bunch of projects. You just want to keep revolving the funds and pulling them out of the first project, putting them in the second and third project, pulling them out of the second and third project, putting them in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh project, and just expanding your activities as you go down that process. You know, I think the one of the interesting facts about development activities is a lot of the development money is precluded from going into early development. It, it has to be post-PPA. And that's just built into a lot of the developing positions, a lot of the developers' financiers. And that's like the most common conversation I, I hear when I talk to people about uh, accelerating projects into the pipeline. Right, because what the money wants to see is a contract. Correct. They want to see a, a piece of collateral that will in some way provide a, we'll call it virtually a guaranteed return. It sounds to me like you're saying there isn't enough at-risk capital in the marketplace right now. That's right. That there's there's a bets. hunger or an appetite for high-risk, high-return capital to launch more and more of these projects. Absolutely. So, Phil... Where do we go from here? Are there, as you've pointed out, are there heuristics? Are there markets that we can look to? For examples, are there people like your firm that are uh, creating new models? Uh, is this a call to arms for our industry that we need to figure this out? Well, I, I definitely think that it's a call to arms if for no other reason that the price point of solar is, is, is telling us that we're there. 
And if we're already there, then that what other you know better call to arms could there possibly be? Billions of dollars of projects, if not tens of billions of dollars of projects out there, uh, dozens of market niches, all of them profitable. And so what I see is a diversity of funding opportunities. I think we need to sort of bust out of the old thinking in terms of financing projects and saying, well, there has to be, you know, there are going to be customers who maybe don't have good credit ratings, but maybe we can have a higher internal rate of return on the project and get them funded anyway. Right. Oh, let's take some, let's take 1% of the equity money we put in these projects in the US and put it overseas in Kenya. Right. Even and, and get higher returns than just, you know, five, six, seven and a half percent or whatever we're getting here. Of course, because we're going to say, well, they don't have the credit rating and all that other good stuff, but they sure as heck have the ability to have profitable solar projects. And, and the returns are there. And so, so let's set up, you know, equity positions where we can go into interesting places and put in projects that would otherwise not be financeable. So I think that's the call to action. I think it's sort of the ecosystem needs to sort of spread out. And we need, I think if I were to sort of summarize it, we need more money up front and we need more money on the back end. And we have a lot of equity money sitting in the middle trying to do the same thing. And I don't think that that's necessarily efficient um, or constructive for sort of building out the ecosystem and the range of projects that are actually available right now. And that's not a criticism as much as a statement of opportunity, if I can just be, be clear. I'm not, uh, you know. Absolutely. So we are eternal optimists here in Suncast for the most part. I would like to explore a couple of more really quick things with you as we wrap. We've discovered a lot and discussed a lot around roadblocks, problems, hurdles to overcome. You have a penchant for seeing into the future and the natural evolution of the way that we can borrow from nature, the way that we can borrow from different industries. I know that you're working on solar plus storage. That's kind of the the most commonly discussed phrase uh, or phrasing of how we couple our energy right now in our industry. I'd be curious to peer around the corner with you. What do you believe is the next problem beyond the contracts and infrastructure for regional uh, generation? What do you believe is the next problem that we are going to have to solve in clean energy? So I think, you know, people talk about these local projects as offering resilience. And I think that's correct. But I think what people aren't talking about is that it requires flexibility. It, you know, it comes with flexibility built into it. And what my work and the projects we've worked on demonstrates is that there are optimal mixes of solar and wind and storage. And there are optimal mixes of different types of storage. And so we're just looking at sort of a local flexibility, which kind of says on the one hand, well, we've got cookie cutters for what these projects look like and the types of battery storage or the inclusion of hydrogen or other sort of on-off type of peaker capabilities. So we have an idea what these projects look like, but I think we've got to get over this idea that the future is one of flexibility. And it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a type of cookie cutter, but it's not gonna be quite nearly as constrained as it has been in the past, I don't think. It's sort of an openness to mixing and matching and exploring dozens of different market niches rather than trying to just go bigger and bigger and you know hitting utility scales and lower cost of electricity, lower generation costs. Because I think that misses you know, where the opportunities are and where the market is headed because of these skewed cost profiles. Phil, we've explored a wide range of topics here, and I'm sure that more than a couple of my uh, tribe are going to want to reach out, at least thank you, if not uh, ask some more probing questions. Where can folks find you? What's the easiest way to connect? The easiest way uh, is always by email, phil at resourcerenewables.com. Uh, I am on LinkedIn. I don't usually tweet, um, <laughs> so I don't have uh, you know, necessarily all of the sort of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter profiles that, that maybe I should. I love talking about this stuff, and I really, I really invite the community to reach out. I love this conversation. I want to have it more. And for me, it's just deeply personal. It's my purpose. It's my mission. And it's just... I think a golden opportunity for this whole, you know, solar community and renewable energy community at large to grow and expand and evolve and, and 
you know, reach higher and achieve. Phil, I really appreciate the time uh, that we've spent together today. And I have one final question uh, as we uh, bring it home. If you could project to the community the thesis of how you're going to spend the next five, 10 years and you had to do it in the container of a TED Talk, what would that TED Talk be about? My TED Talk, Nico, would be about uh, how financing makes things happen. I think it's about setting up the structures, um, the the advantages, the grease and the, the the oil, the machinery. It all works because you know you set things up that work financially. And if we're not going places and doing you know innovative projects and exploring new markets, it's probably because the money hasn't been set up to go there. I think that would be the, the sort of the biggest takeaway: is how can you how can you accelerate going places just by how you set up financing. When your TED Talk on how to accelerate the money to grease the infrastructure of our industry comes out, we'll be watching it and proliferating it here on Suncast. Dr. Phil Watts is CEO of Resource Renewable Energy, and it has been our pleasure, Dr. Watts, to spend some time with you learning more about how you see the world of regional generation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nico. All right, all right, Solar Warriors, that was a lot of fun. And as we wrap today's show, I'd like to ask you if you are listening in Spotify, iTunes, whatever podcast player you like, would you just give us a thumbs up or a like inside the app? And hey, if you feel so encouraged and motivated, would you just leave us a rating and a review in that app as well? Because it does help with discovery. And we are growing this year, thanks to you and so many other solar warriors who tune in every week. Thank you for that. Well, if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion with Dr. Watts and every other discussion, as well as social media links, book recommendations, and so much more at our blog at mysuncast.com. Do you ever go there? Do you check it out? Do you like it? If you do, would you share something that you like on LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn a ton, as many of you would know, and I like hearing from you. I also like to know when you are picking up what we're laying down outside of the podcast, like our weekly roundup series that we've been doing with Solar Power International if you're not paying attention, Solar Power International, not only the largest trade show in the United States, but also the largest gathering of vendors and sellers and developers and everyone else in between that has to do with solar and storage and electric vehicles in the United States has been happening for the last few weeks. You can find out more at mysuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020, where we link to all the content that we've been creating. We also link to the website and give you a special little goodie discount code so that you can sign up for SPI. And you'll want to do that because next week is the actual trade show. That's right. The thing that brings us usually to Salt Lake City or LA or Las Vegas or Chicago, one of my favorites, by the way, is happening in a virtual way next week. All of these seven weeks of microconferences culminate in next week as we bring Solar Power International Virtual Trade Show to Life on the 21st and 22nd of October. I hope you'll join us. And you can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash SPI 2020. I hope that you'll be at SPI next week. I also hope you'll tune in as we'll be bringing you more content on Tuesday and Thursday. So thanks once again for showing up and putting me in your earbuds, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle. <laughs>